So we've been working our way through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, and we started this series on 1 Samuel 16 and 17 a couple of weeks ago. And so we're going to jump back into 1 Samuel 16. And the last couple of weeks, we only looked at the first seven verses and this idea that uh, uh, God had told Samuel, Samuel's an old man now, God had told Samuel to go to the town of Bethlehem. Now, the town of Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. If you see on this map, it's uh, Jerusalem's up there in the north, Bethel, Gibeah, and then Jerusalem, and then Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem. All the action is in Jerusalem. Bethlehem is kind of this podunk town. Uh, no one really important lives there. And so God says to Samuel, I'm sending you to Bethlehem, uh, the house of Jesse, to anoint a king. Now, what God is asking Samuel to do is treason, because Saul is king. And God is asking Samuel to go anoint a new king while Saul is still king, even though God has said Saul's time is over. He's no longer going to be king. He has not listened well. He has not acted as a king should act. And so a new king needs to come to power. Uh, but this is treason because Saul is still king. And so Samuel, now an old man, travels to Bethlehem to anoint this new king in the house of Jesse. Now, uh, I, I love so much of what Dave said because I feel like it aligns so much with our text this morning. Uh, he said, when, when pastors tell their farmers that what they are doing is what they were created for, uh, that they have been told that their role is the least of the least. It, it is the bottom, and yet it was what they were made for. It is their glory to till the soil and to be a farmer. Because the story we're looking at today is, a, is about a boy who's a shepherd. It's the job no one else wanted. It's uh, the least of the least. It's the job that you give the youngest. And David is the youngest. And he's largely ignored by his older brothers. And he's out tending the sheep. Not only that, but his lineage isn't all that great. To think that uh, a king would come from this lineage. Now, if you remember uh, last Advent, we journeyed through the book of Ruth. And uh, Ruth ends up marrying a man named Boaz. Uh, and they have children. You, you know who Ruth's grandson is? It's Jesse. This immigrant Moabite woman, her grandson is Jesse. Uh, but if we look in Matthew 1, we see that it, Moabite blood isn't the only foreign blood in this line. In Matthew 1, we see Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now Tamar was a Canaanite who almost got killed for committing adultery. Interesting that she is mentioned in the line of Jesse, who is ultimately the line of Jesus. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz's mother was Rahab. Remember who Rahab was? A prostitute in Jericho. So this is the line that Jesse comes from that God says, I want you to go to his house. 
uh, the house of a man who has Tamar in his line, who has Rahab in his line, who has Ruth, a Moabitess, in his line. That's the house I want you to go to. And you're going to anoint one of his sons to be king. If you're Samuel, you're God's prophet, you're thinking, what? <laughs> Jesse? No, 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 this is not a kingly line, God. This is not where we're going, right? No, this is where you're going, Samuel. This is the house you're going to, the house of Jesse in this podunk town of Bethlehem. And so he arrives, verse 6, and Samuel saw Eliab, this is Jesse's oldest son, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And last week we explored this idea of God looking at the heart, that what matters is the heart, not the outward experience, not what our culture so often focuses on, but what matters is the heart. And uh, we particularly explored this idea of compassion. Uh, what would it look like if the church was more concerned about losing compassion than we were about losing our place in line? What if the church was more concerned about losing compassion than we were about being right? What if we were more concerned about losing compassion than we were about losing face? God's heart is a heart of love, a heart of compassion, and he invites us to be a people whose hearts are filled with his love and his compassion. And so the story continues. Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have. I, I, mean, I just wonder what this scene was like. Uh, just kind of an odd scene, isn't it? Each one of these sons passing before the old prophet and Samuel saying no. Did he interview each of them? Uh, did he ask them questions and try to get to know them and then discern by the Spirit? No, no, no. What was it? Or did he just have them pass? And the Spirit said no, no. No, no. Uh, it's just such an odd scene, I think. This old prophet at the house of Jesse and saying no to each of these sons as they pass. And then all seven sons pass by. And Samuel, you've got to be thinking, Samuel is like, okay, God, did, did I hear you right? I must have heard you right. House of Jesse, bad lineage. Okay, whew. Some other house. And something within Samuel just is like, there's got to be another son. Do you have any other sons? 
Jesse? Notice the response. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. It's almost a, a dismissive, uh, well, there's the youngest, but he's out watching the sheep. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Samuel is famous through all of Israel. All of Israel loves this man. He has been a faithful, faithful leader. If Samuel shows up and says, we're going to have a feast and a sacrifice, this is a big deal. The entire town would want to be around this man and just bask in his glow. No one thought to go get David. You would want your whole family to be around this man. And no one thought, we, Abinadab, go get David. Samuel's here. Go get him. It was just like, ah, Samuel. He's out watching the sheep. Samuel said, do you have any other sons? Well, yeah, it, I mean, David, but he just watches the sheep. That, that's what he does. Go get him. Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now, when it's time to eat, I don't know what it's like in your house, but in my house, it's like kind of whining starts to ensue, uh, some complainings. I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm starving. I, I mean, I can't imagine this scene. Like Samuel, the seer, says, we're not sitting down until the youngest arrives. Now imagine these seven other sons just kind of eyeballing the food, the table, trying to sneak something. Samuel giving them the look. Uh, Abinadab getting a little tired. Maybe I'll just sit down next to this tree and glances over at Samuel and it's like, oop. Uh, they all waited. Who knows how far away David was with the sheep. They had to wait for someone to go get him and bring him back. Everyone just standing around waiting for David to come in from watching the sheep. We don't like to wait, do we? We are not a patient people so often. We don't like to wait. Uh, it's interesting to me. I, I don't know if this has any connection or not with uh, patience and attention span or not, but it, it's interesting to me that uh, in the Olympics, uh, probably the most famous track and field event is the 100-meter dash. Uh, it's the one that takes the least amount of time. I, I can watch the 100-meter dash. I'm not going to watch the 10,000-meter run, uh, which actually I sat down and watched with my daughter Zoya last night. We watched a replay of it. It was fascinating. Anyone watch the 10,000-meter? Yeah. Mo Farah, British runner. Oh my goodness, he won the gold four years ago. It's incredibly difficult to come back and win four years later. And here's this man, Mo Farah, who's battling it out to win the, the tent. This is over six miles long. So you gotta sit and watch this thing. For six miles, you're watching these men race. And what's fascinating to me is that after six miles, they are still neck and neck. 
Like it is a race from the beginning to end. So if you falter at the beginning, look out, you're in trouble. Well, you know what happened? Uh, beginning of the race, there's like 20 guys all jammed together and the runner behind Mo Farah clips his heel, Mo Farah falls. He falls. Like that, that spells the end of the race for him. No chance of repeating gold medal. The man gets back up and starts running again and goes and goes and goes and you're gonna have to watch it. <laughs> he won. He won. He repeated for the second time gold medal win. But it, it's fascinating to watch a race like that uh, or to watch the fullness of uh, the women's gymnastics, right? I mean, Simone Biles expected to win gold, but you still have to wait and watch and anticipate, is she gonna do it? Is she gonna do it? And then what was so exciting for me about watching it was Allie Reisman, who tied for bronze four years ago, lost the tiebreaker, did not medal in the individual event, and this year, oh man, you're gonna have to watch it. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. We don't like to wait, do we? And here they are, all standing around, waiting waiting for the youngest, waiting for the one who doesn't really matter, waiting for the one who all he does is watch the sheep. This low-level job. <clears throat> one of the basic themes throughout the entire biblical narrative is God's heart for the least. God's heart for the youngest. God's heart for the outsider. God's heart for those who others look at and say they don't really matter. And shepherds didn't really matter. And so you know what God does? God uses it as a powerful metaphor for himself. That he is one who shepherds his people. And sometime after the time of David, the prophet Ezekiel is speaking the very words of God and he says this, God says through Ezekiel, I myself will tend my sheep. I will search for the lost. Back one, please. I myself will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. God says through Ezekiel, this is a, the entire chapter of Ezekiel 34 is a strong rebuke to those who are in religious power, who have not shepherded the people of Israel well. And God says, I will shepherd them. I will bring back the lost and the weak and the strays. And you know what? I'm going to send someone in the heart of David who will shepherd them. Jesus comes and in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10 is Jesus' answer to Ezekiel 34. It's fascinating to look at Ezekiel 34 and John 10. For those of you who are in faith communities or just uh, doing life with your family or with friends, uh, I encourage you to spend time looking at Ezekiel 34 and then looking at John 10 and seeing God's word to the religious people uh, in the day of Ezekiel and Jesus coming and fulfilling this word from Ezekiel 34 and Jesus' word to the religious people of his day and how he is the true and good shepherd 
who lays down his life. This is what David was. He was a shepherd. And they're all waiting for this shepherd boy to come. Verse 12, he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Now, to me, this is just a hilarious verse uh, that the narrator decided to put in here because what have we just been looking at the last couple of weeks? People look at what? The outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. Uh, And so God said, I'm not looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart of one I've seen who will be king. And the heart of this one who he has seen to be king comes and what is he? He's a stud. Uh, And so you can still be really good looking and have a good heart. I think that that maybe is what the narrator is trying to say. David was a stud and he, he had a good heart. So Samuel, uh, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Samuel, this shepherd boy, this nobody, this outsider, the least, the youngest of his brothers, is the one whose heart God has seen and said, he is to be king. Uh, Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness holiness, and redemption. Uh, Eugene Peterson talks about this scene uh, with David, and he he says something like, uh, David is the biblical rebuke to the human word just. He's just the shepherd. He's just the youngest. He's just... uh, And this is something so often we hear in our language today. And and when I hear it, it's sometimes it's people saying it about other people, but you know what I hear more often? People saying it about themselves. Well, I'm just fill in the blank. Uh, David was just a shepherd, just the youngest, just the one no one paid much attention to. God is in the business of using the people who we think don't have the capacity for greatness to live in to their greatness because of the spirit powerfully moving 
within them. Uh, I believe this is a word for each one of us this morning. Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, when the Spirit moves within you, you can do great things for the kingdom. Uh, we're all created in the image of God. We all possess this divine DNA with the capacity to live with grace and love and humility in God's kingdom. I mean, the, the world tells us that it's about position and power and influence uh, over and over again in the biblical narrative. It's more about the posture of the heart in the place God has given you to create influence. Um, we have a congregational care team here at Bay Marin, and we had a meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I don't see Susanna Beck this morning, so I can just talk about her freely, I suppose. Um, she, uh, she brought this devotional for us, and she brought a couple of pages from C.S. Lewis's uh, essay, The Weight of Glory. And we read uh, these couple of pages through a couple of times, and one of the lines in this, C.S. Lewis says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And after we spent some time focusing on what C.S. Lewis had written, uh, just some pe different people shared how it spoke to them. And one person said, what if we looked at everyone this way? That everyone possesses the image of God, this divine spark within them. And then he said, what if I looked at so-and-so this way? And he mentioned a current political figure. And I think it gave everyone in the room pause. In a culture where we are so quick to judge, so quick uh, with our political rhetoric, uh, doesn't mean you agree with this person, doesn't mean you have to like what they stand for, but what if we viewed them first and foremost as human and bearing the image of God that you've never looked at a mere mortal? Uh, there are no ordinary people. There are no just this or just that. Uh, the poet Hafez says it this way. He says, where is the door to God? And then he answers, in the sound of a barking dog, in the ring of a hammer, in a drop of rain, in the face of everyone I see. Uh, w what if our first impulse when we encounter another human being, when we look in their face, is that we see the image of God. We, we see a human being who possesses the very image of God. Uh, something about this text that's interesting is we don't get David's name until the end. Uh, I mean, we look back at it now, or, or uh, Israel reading this uh, in a first century context, they look back at it and they know it's David, they know David's come, but, but we don't get his name until after he's anointed. And I, I love that, that names carry weight. 
we are named, not numbered. And when we are named, our names are like a seed that give birth to the story that we are becoming in the world that joins this big overarching narrative arc of God's story of healing and redemption and restoration in the world. That, that our name means something. Our anointing by the Spirit means something. Our story means something in God's story. David is this, this signpost in the story that leads to the one who is over and over and over again referred to as the son of David, one from the house of David. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word for anointing is the same word as Messiah. Uh, David was the beginning fruits of the Messiah to come. We are all anointed. We are all little messiahs being formed into the image of the true Messiah, Jesus, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the world. And we are invited to get to do the same, to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the sake of the world. That's why we do this. We, when we take this bread and dip it in this cup, we remember Christ's body. We remember his blood. We remember that Christ broke himself open and poured himself out for the sake of the world. And we too are invited to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the sake of the world. So this morning when you come and dip the bread in the cup, uh, I want to do something a little different that we don't do terribly often, but I want to invite you to come and partake of the bread in the cup. And then I'm going to have, I'm going to be right over here, I'm going to have some anointing oil and I want to invite you after you partake of communion to come and be anointed. To remind you that you are named, you have a story, you are anointed to break yourselves open and pour yourselves out for the sake of the world in the name of the true Messiah. That's Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story that reminds us of what you so often do. You use us in our brokenness. You, you use the least, the nobody, the outsider. And you remind all of us that there are no ordinary people. We are all created in your image. Everyone belongs. God, I pray that more than ever, you would fill our hearts with the love of Christ for the sake of the world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
So as you go this morning, may you know the very presence of the risen Christ within you and all around you. May you be a people who break yourselves open and pour yourselves out for the sake of the world. Even when you feel like you can't keep going, may you continue to break yourselves open and pour yourselves out, knowing that you are being filled back up with the presence of the risen Christ, the very presence of God's Spirit within you. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen.